this morning we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 23 from verse 12. Um, but before that, let's start with this. We sleek it, cowering, timorous beastie. Oh, you already know where I'm going, great. Oh, what a panic's in thy breastie. Thou needna start away so hasty wi' bickering brattle. I would be laith to rin and chase thee wi' murdering prattle. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes thee startle. At me, thy poor earth-born companion and fellow mortal. But mousy, thou art no thy lane, and proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glay. And lay us not but grief and pain for promised joy. Don't worry, you're not going to have to endure another 30 minutes of old Scots to sit through. Um, you may or you may not have recognised that, uh, just a short part of Rabbi Burns' poem, uh, Te Amus. Um, and even if you didn't recognise the poem, I'm pretty sure that you will at least be aware of the saying that has sprung from it, the best lead scheme, schemes of mice and men, gang after glee, or as we say now, often go awry. A term that we use now today to talk about plans that go wrong. Uh, there's no mice involved, but our sermon today comes from a passage uh, where the schemes of men go awry. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. And as a church, we, we've been working our way through the final chapters of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and just a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the start of the account of the Apostle Paul um, and his trial in Jerusalem. Um, and over these last few chapters... Paul, we've seen, has been on public trial in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, um, that Jesus Christ was sent by God into a world full of sin to save the world from sin. Um, and what we've seen so far is that Paul has appeared before the court. He's defended himself and his message whilst being tied up, accused, and at times even beaten. And so our passage today that we're going to read picks up just after his release. Um, and in our last sermon in Acts, a couple of weeks ago, Paul Merton uh, spoke to us, and he, he read at the end of that passage that Jesus appeared to, to, Pete, to Paul in prison after such a difficult and trying ordeal, and he told Paul this. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so our passage today tells of what happened the following day. So let's, uh, let's read together Acts 23, uh, verses 12 to 35. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me. 
and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't, let, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a, dis- a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word. We praise you that as a church we can come together uh, and read from it and learn from it. And we just pray that you'll speak to us um, through the words that we have on the page before us. Um, we just pray that you will speak into our lives in a way that is, is meaningful, that causes us to, uh, to respond. Um, and Father God, we just pray that this passage today will inspire us uh, in our relationship with you uh, and encourage us to share uh, the gospel that we know with the world around us. Amen. It's, uh, it's quite the tale, isn't it? It's almost the, the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster with its plotting and scheming and great escape twist. Um, Paul has had a rough time of it in Jerusalem as we've, uh, as we've been reading over the last uh, few weeks and we're told that it doesn't get much better for him and he doesn't get much chance to rest up before we, what we have just read happens the very next day. And we're told that this group of 40 40 men, clearly unhappy with the way that the public trial went with Paul's release. They've come up with a plot to get rid of him, to bring their own brand of justice. What they were hoping for in the trials that we were reading about in the past few weeks was that Paul would be sentenced to death. And so when that didn't happen, we were told that they decided to take things into their own hands. It's worth reminding ourselves just briefly um, of the Jews of the time. We're told that they were divided mainly into two main groups or parties. We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
both of whom declared faith in God and both of whom sought to apply the law, the Mosaic law, to Jewish society. And although the Pharisees and the Sadducees were similar in many ways, they were notably different in other ways. In other ways. And famously, the Sadducees were known to be much more aristocratic and politically minded than the Pharisees, as well as being much more religiously conservative. That's what we read about just a couple of weeks ago. And this Sanhedrin that we read of was the appointed Jewish court of the time, mainly made up of these Sadducees, whose job it was to bring law and order according to God's word to the Jewish populace. And this Sanhedrin, as we've seen over the past few weeks, we've seen them put Paul on trial, bind him with chains, and at times even beat him. Just at the beginning of chapter 23, a couple of weeks ago, we read that while Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees stated that they couldn't find anything wrong with him or anything that he has done. In fact, in verse 9 of chapter 23, we read that they admitted that God could be at work. And so in the eyes of the majority of the Pharisees, Paul is innocent. But the schemers and the plotters that we've read of this morning, they seem to be made up mainly of the irreligious and the Sadducees. And so that's why when they approach the chief priests and the elders with their plot, there's no consideration for the possibility that God might be at work through Paul. Or that this gospel truth, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he has been so shamelessly preaching about that that could possibly be from God. And additionally, on top of that, this group of Jews scheming with the chief priests and the elders, the dominant Sadducees of the Sanhedrin, are so intent of getting rid of Paul that they can't see the hypocrisy that they're guilty of. Their claims of Paul's apparent blasphemy and breaking of the law whips them up into such a frenzy that it leads them to almost break the very mosaic law that they claim to serve. In their plot to kill Paul, they seek to take into their own hands a right that God has claimed to be his alone, to take away life. God himself says in the book of Deuteronomy, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. So determined are this group to kill Paul that they're seeking to take this right away from God, from the God that they claim to serve, to take justice into their own hands. They're so intent on killing Paul that they bind themselves to this plot by swearing an oath not to eat or drink until he's dead. And this kind of oath was fairly common of the time. Although we might consider it to be a bit excessive, it declared how seriously they took this entire matter and ensured that they would see it through. The reason I'm focusing so much on this and their intentions and where they're coming from is because when I first read this passage, I just couldn't see how that hypocrisy had come to be. It's clear when you read it that they are completely blinded. They're completely blinded by their anger towards Paul's teaching that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he died and rose again, that everyone, man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, everyone can know God personally through faith in Jesus. And the reason that this angered them so much, the reason this whipped them up into such a frenzy, was because as Jews and socially, as the highest ranking Jews, 
They alone were God's people in their eyes. The New Testament repeatedly tells us the story of God and his people, the Israelites. The Old Testament tells us that the Jews were God's chosen people, that they alone had a relationship with the creator God. And that's absolutely true. However, the Old Testament also tells of a day when a Messiah will come and offer an invitation to all people into a relationship with God. This was something that the Jews struggled with. And that's what we read back in chapter 22. In verses 21 and 22 of chapter 22, we read that Paul had told the court that Jesus informed him of his mission to share this gospel with all of mankind, not just the Jews, and it caused absolute uproar. This gospel, the good news that Jesus died for all mankind, not just for the Jews, it was blasphemous. It was offensive to this group of Jews who considered themselves to be God's people alone. To them, the very notion of non-Jews being invited into our special relationship with the creator God was what had blinded them to their own hypocrisy. They were blinded by anger and blinded by their wrong beliefs to the point where Paul, where killing Paul, taking the right to determine life away from God became right in their eyes. The arrogance and the hypocrisy of this is astounding and clearly this is no longer an issue of faith. This group of chief priests God's representatives to society were supposed to be administering love and justice and righteousness. But instead, what we read is a plot to kill someone. And yet, in realizing, in in reading this, I realized that the church today, often at times, is seen the same way in society. As the church today, are we not often more known for the things that we are against than the things that we are for. When the world around, the, around us speaks of church, does it speak of the love of God? Does the world around us see truth and justice and righteousness when it sees the church? In many ways, I don't think that it does. This is in part down to media portrayal and it also comes from historical failings. However, the church has a PR problem. It's my personal belief that when the secular society around us thinks of the church, it most often thinks of institutional and organized religion, archaic and outdated. It thinks of judgment and self-righteousness, thinks of an institution that is no longer relevant to society today. My experience of non-Christian friends and family is a belief that the church is much more vehement in the things it opposes, things like same-sex marriage, premarital sex, than it, than it is for things that it's for, like love, displaying God's love, social justice and forgiveness. And as a Christian, it's, that's not my experience of the church at all. That's not my knowledge of the church. And that's not my experience of Christianity. To me, this portrayal that society has of the church is unfair and it's completely unbalanced. In fact, it frustrates me that the world around us has not been given an accurate picture of what Christianity is about or what the church is for rather than what the church is against 
or who God is. And on reflecting on this, I want, to, I want society around me to see the same kind of Christianity that I know, that I've experienced. I want the world around us to see the church that I know and that I've experienced. I want society around us to see God's love, to see compassion, humility, and community. The same compassion, humility, and community that I see. We have a PR problem in the church. There's an unfair and unbalanced image. But the only way that we can fight against this image that society has at times of the church is through relationships, through showing God's love to the people around us, to the people in our lives, by knowing people and loving them intentionally. Whenever I spend time with non-Christian friends, I want them to see a difference between what the world tells them Christianity is like and what I'm like. I want them to see Jesus in the way that I act and speak and behave. And so that's, that's my challenge for all of us this morning. Do the people around us at home and at work and at school, do they know that we are, we are Christians? Do we give them reason to reject society's view of the church and Christianity? Do we give them reason to believe that their image of Christianity is skewed. Much like the Jews that we read of beforehand, we as God's people are called to be God's representatives in the world today, to stand out, to set an example. God's people are so often known for what we are against rather than what we are for. That's our challenge. Are we more known for the things that we're against than what we're for? When we go to work and school and college, when we go home this week, will we represent God by being different, by showing his love to the world that we live in? The church's message has been at times, but shouldn't be that we are the morally superior of society. It should be that we are broken, imperfect people made right by a perfect savior. Let's be known for the things that we are for, rather than what we're against. Let's be known for showing God's love to the world around us. Getting back to our passage, this group of men put together this plot to kill Paul, binding themselves to it with this oath not to eat or drink until he's dead. They plan to have him lured out by another summons to appear before the Sanhedrin to the court. They want to bring him back to the court via the narrow Jerusalem streets and ambush him. And it could have been the perfect plan if it wasn't for a pesky kid. A group of 40 men, plus the chief priests and the elders, this great plot to finally get rid of Paul, who's been so troublesome to them for so long, was derailed by a kid who overheard it. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Paul's nephew was probably a teenager at most, um, possibly, probably someone who served in the court, which would explain his presence. He overheard this plot and quickly informed Paul, allowing Paul to plan his escape. And this was no coincidence either. There's no way that these 40 men and chief priests and elders would have expe expected their plan to be derailed by our young lad. 
This was no accident. This was God's providence and planning. This teenager's intervention allowed for, God's, for Paul's escape. Rabbi Burns' famous line should be changed maybe to the best laid plans of mice and men don't have a patch on God's plans. And the cleverest plots of 40 men and a group of chief, chief priests and elders don't have a hope of success against one of God's. As we looked at, Christ had appeared before Paul just hours beforehand to inform him that he would testify in Rome. This group of schemers and plotters were not going to be able to prevent that from happening. If our God is for us, who can be against us? This is what it says in Proverbs 21. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Just hours beforehand, Christ appeared to Paul and promised that he would testify in Rome. When Paul originally heard of this plot against him, I wonder what he must have been thinking. Was he thinking, this is the end? I'm going to die before I get to Rome. I think there's a a real lesson here in how Paul responds to the news of this plot to kill him. His response is not, well, God promised me that I would get to Rome, so I'll just wait here until he provides a way out of this situation. Paul was convinced that God would lead him to Rome, that God would protect him. But he doesn't sit where he is waiting for God to perform a dazzling miracle. Rather, he sees God at work in the small details. His nephew overhearing the plot is not seen by Paul as a lucky coincidence. He doesn't see it as some kind of karma or fate. He sees God's hand at work in this small detail, offering him a route out of this situation. There would be no wisdom at all in Paul turning to his nephew, approaching with the news of this plot, and Paul responding with, no thanks, I'll just wait here until God rescues me. His nephew was an indication of God's rescue. If he had brushed off this news in lieu of a miracle, he would have missed the miracle. He responds to the news of the plot and takes action. He takes advantage of God's hand at work in the small details. He used the opportunity that was presented to him, not doubting that God was involved in it. Today, God is so often at work in the small details. In fact, the prophet Elijah discovered a similar truth about God in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. We're told this story. Elijah is on the run and in fear of his life. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? On the run and in fear of death, when he was absolutely desperate for God to be at work, Elijah discovered that God is not limited in how he acts or makes himself known to his people. God didn't appear and make himself known in the wind, in the earthquake, or in the fire. He spoke through a whisper. 
And let me be clear, God absolutely does speak and act and speak to his people in amazing, miraculous, through the dazzling, with the amazing. But God also works in the small details and in the whispers. My question is, are we waiting for God to do something that is dazzling and astounding and missing all of the small details or the whispers that he's providing? Are there indications from God that we ignore because we consider them to be insignificant? Do we pray for opportunities to share the gospel with people and then miss those opportunities over coffee or through conversations to talk about church at the weekend or what God has been doing in your life right now? Do we ask God to give us directions for our future, to show us his plans for our lives, for our family, our careers, and then ignore the doors that he opens along the way because we're waiting for some message that's been written in the sky? Do we ask for comfort in difficult times and then turn away from opportunities to pray or read his word? God is so often at work in the small details and in the whispers But we have to be looking for those from God, listening to his word, the stirrings of our heart, not rejecting them in the hope that we will be dazzled. So God provided a head start for Paul to escape and Paul took advantage, took action and turned to the Roman commander for help. We read an awful lot in the New Testament of Paul's willingness to lay down his life for Christ his willingness to die for what he believed in. It's not the fear of death that spurs Paul into action. It's the awareness that he has a job to do and a mission to fulfill. Just the evening before, Jesus had appeared to him and assured him that he would be in Rome to share the gospel and to testify about him. And on hearing of the plot to kill him, Paul plans his escape, not because he is afraid to die, but because he hasn't yet done all that God is preparing him to do. And so he he turns to the Roman Roman governor, Lysias, um, as we read in verse 17. Paul wasn't willing to be killed by this group of men. He stood up for himself and responded. That's why he looks to defend himself, to use the weight of the Roman law to protect himself and his interests. And today, for us as Christians, sometimes there are times that we have to stand up for ourselves, for our faith, and for our God. Yes, we are to be different from the world, and we should act and react to events happening around us. As God's people, we're told in Micah 6 and 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. But this passage here should absolutely not be misinterpreted as, as Christians, we should be quiet. We shouldn't cause a fuss. We should be pushovers. As Paul demonstrates here, there are times that we have to stand up on behalf of our God in our world today. As Christians, there are causes for which we are God's representatives God's mouthpiece. In the current social discussions around equality, marriage, sexuality, abortion, family, 
creation, the freedom to share the gospel, among many other issues. Who will stand up for God, for his word, for his commandments, if not us, the church? Who will speak for righteousness if we stay silent on these topics? Let's be honest, it's an intimidating thought, but it's what we're called to do, to engage in these discussions, to be God's people, to be God's instruments here on earth, and to see justice done in God's name. And of course, all of this must be done in the right way. We have to find the balance between pursuing justice and standing up for our faith and our God. That has to be balanced with showing love and justice and humility to the world around us, being true to God's word. Most importantly, it has to be done with an understanding and love for the Bible, for God's word. How can we claim to know God's teaching on something without studying his word? How can we speak on his behalf if we don't read the words that he has given us? How can we be prepared to defend God's teaching on marriage, sexuality, life, the major issues that are going on in society today? How can we defend those teachings without having discovered what those are in depth? As society evolves and shifts, I am more and more convinced that we as Christians have to study God's word daily so that we can faithfully engage the society around us on topics that are close to God's heart. It's easy to see that in many ways society is gradually turning away from God. Would any of us be ready to defend God's teaching on these topics if asked or challenged? Do we know what God's word teaches about the major discussions that are going on in the world today? I really can't emphasize enough how important it is for us as Christians to read and know and love God's word so that we can respond and stand up for what he declares to be right in our society today. So Paul stood up for himself. He wrote to the commander in charge and asked for help. And the commander's response to Paul's request for help shows just how seriously he took this whole thing and proved that God had been involved in the entire extraction exercise. In verse 23, we're told that the commander ordered nearly 500 men, probably about half of the garrison available to him, to personally escort Paul out of Jerusalem sending him to Caesarea along with a letter for Felix the governor explaining the situation. And Luke, who was the author of the book of Acts, includes the letter for us to read. And we can see that Lysias writes to Felix explaining how he heroically stepped in and saved Paul and that just as the Jews were about to kill Paul, heroic Lysias saved the day. He does, of course, fail to mention the, the trials of the previous chapters in which he allowed the incarceration and beating of a Roman citizen. He fails to mention God at work in the small details. Finally, he requests that Felix hears the case against Paul. And the end of our passage informs us that Paul is held under guard awaiting the governor's hearing. 
And next week, Rob's going to be looking at Acts chapter 24 and what happens next to Paul. The difficult times for Paul are not yet over. And in fact, they continue right until the end of the book of Acts, which we'll be reading over the next few weeks. I wonder in the midst of all of this, and we are in the midst of an awful time for Paul, an awful lot of trial, an awful lot of persecution. I wonder what his thoughts were. Did he consider the comparison between his own situation, the things that he was going through, and what Jesus Christ went through? Does he cast his mind back to the trials of Jesus, knowing that his Savior endured the same suffering and more than that which he is going through? Paul himself wrote to the church in Corinthians, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. It's great to know that Paul sought comfort in Christ in the middle of all of this, and he shows us how to respond to difficult times, to rely on the knowledge that God is in control of our situations and is at work in the small details and in the whispers, also to remember that God keeps his promises. He promised Paul that he would endure this difficult time, that he would get through it in Jerusalem and move on to Rome to testify there. And the best laid plans of those 40 men and those 40 men and the chief priests and elders couldn't stand in God's way. In fact, he made a mockery of them by derailing this whole thing through a well-placed teenager. God stepped into Paul's situation, proved that he is in control and that his promises are true. And just reading God's word today, there are so many promises there for us as Christians, promises of strength and endurance and provision, salvation, promises of an eternity in heaven with him. It's great to know that God is in control, that he keeps the promises that he makes to his people. It's great to know that God is at work in the small details and in the whispers. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word. We praise you that we have the accounts of your faithful servant, Paul. Um, We just pray that this will inspire us and encourage us in our relationship with you. Father God, allow us to see you at work in the small details in our life, to grasp opportunities when they arise, as insignificant as they might seem, to be encouraged by the small victories that we gain, Father God, help us to be your representatives to the world around us. Help us to have a voice in society that speaks your truth into the society. Help us to stand up for the God that we believe in, to stand up for the faith that we have in you. Father God, help us to do all these things with love and justice and humility. Help us to be good examples of Jesus Christ in the world around us today. Amen.